So let's get right into it. We're going, we're continuing our series with Ezra 5 and 6. Um, they're long chapters, so I decided just to read portions of it. We're just going to read Ezra 5 verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to read Ezra 6 verses 13 to 22. Okay, the Word of God reads, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Chapter 6. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozenai and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions and for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. Verse 19. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the, the God of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the journey that you're taking us through the, this book in Ezra. And God, I know it's like this story that's so you know ancient to us sometimes, but yet it's so real and so personal. And once again, we ask that you speak to us once again. The same God that moved thousands of years back during this time is the same God that we worship today. We thank you, God, for being here and wanting to speak to your people and wanting to move your people your way so that we can do your will. And so, God, we ask that you open up our hearts, that you open up our minds, and that you open up our hands so that we may truly be open to all that you not only do you have, that you have to speak to us, but, Father, the the way in which you wish for us to live. God, we thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, you know, I think parents, if you're a parent here, you, you understand, but if you're not, uh, it's, easily, it's easy to understand. I think parents have this innate desire to see all of their children prosper and do well in all that they do. Okay, And, you know, for me, uh, I'm, I'm like that too, and I didn't know I'd be like that. But I'm like that too. I remember I went to uh, a kid's soccer game. My oldest kid played soccer like when he was like, uh, I don't know, what was he, seven years old, eight years old. And it's so funny. If you've ever been to a toddler's soccer game, rugby, rugby game, whatever it might be, uh, who do you think is more passionate about this game? 
the parents or the kids? It's the parents by far, right? You, you see all these parents, they're like yelling at their kids, you know, run, kick the ball, score, tackle. And they're going crazy on the side, sidelines, losing their voice. While their toddler, like six-year-old, seven-year-old kids, what do they do on the field? They're like, hmm, grass. You know, and you, know, you see kids sitting down eating the grass and like parents are like yelling at them. It's so funny. You know, my, I had a friend uh, when my when my kid played soccer, he wanted his son to succeed so badly in soccer that after every game, like, you know, he would like tell his kid all the stuff that he did wrong and, and would make him do all these drills to help him get better. Right. Even though this kid, you could tell, could care less. But anyway, all to say... Parents have this innate desire. They just want to see their kids do well, prosper, succeed in all that they do. And our God, our Father, our Heavenly Father is no different. He wants all of his children to prosper. He wants all of his children to succeed in all that we do. Now, in the, in the past few decades, I'll be very frank with you, uh, the word prosper and prosperity has been a very controversial topic in the church. Right. And I think it's been misunderstood grossly by, by a few churches. You know, so let me just cut to the conclusion. We're not going to talk about the whole controversy, but let me just cut to the conclusion of what it means to prosper in Christ. And this is what it means. Uh, being prosperous in Christ is not about being a success in the eyes of the world. It is not about particularly doing well in your chosen profession and therefore living comfortably as a result. That's not what it means to prosper in Christ. That can happen in your life and God can allow those things to happen, but that's not what it means when he talks about prosperity in scripture. Being prosperous in Christ means living a life that successfully advances the kingdom, that successfully advances the will of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world. That's what it means to be prosperous. Do you guys get that? Right? That's what it means to be prosperous. And how do we know that? We could just take a look at Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the living word. He is the living embodiment of every word of scripture. But not only that, but he was the perfect reflection of all that God ever desired for us, modeled perfectly. Right? And so we can see that he, his whole life, is an example of what it means to be prosperous in the eyes of God. His whole life and death was used powerfully to advance the will of God into this world. So today, obviously, we're going to talk about what it means to be prosperous in Christ and maybe how we can actually get there. You know, all throughout Scripture, God says over and over again that he wants us to be prosperous and successful. I don't know, maybe you, you memorize a few verses in your life that God wants me to be prosperous. God wants me to be successful. And those are great. And it's true. Our passage today is actually one of those passages. To kind of recap what's happening so far, Ezra chapter 1, God calls his people back to Jerusalem to build, to rebuild the temple of God. He moved hearts, he stirred hearts for people to move back to Jerusalem from Babylon. In Ezra chapter 2, we see the numbering of the people, and then we see them start marching to Jerusalem, back to the land. In Ezra chapter 3, we see the altar 
starting to be rebuilt and the celebrating of the festival of tabernacles or the festival of booths, you know, grounding their faith back in God. And in Ezra chapter four, we see that there is opposition against the building of the temple. So they halt that work for a few years. And then in Ezra chapter five, which is the chapter we're reading today, the Jews take up the task once again of rebuilding the temple and they finish it in the face of opposition. And in this chapter, what we're really reading is how God helped them to prosper and put them on this road to prosperity. You know, there's a verb in in these two chapters that I really want to point out that really kind of is the centerpiece of these two chapters. And it's a verb found in verse, uh, in chapter five, verse eight, as well as chapter six, verse 14. And what that verb is, is it's the Hebrew word for to prosper or to succeed. Let me just read those verses together. 5.8 says this, Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. The work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. 6.14 says, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. Now, to help you understand what this word prosper actually means in the original language, it's the exact same verb used in Psalm chapter 1 and Joshua chapter 1 as well. And these are probably verses that you may have heard before. So just to, you know, just to give you some familiarity. Psalm chapter 1 says this. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And here we go. In all that he does, he prospers. So Psalm 1 is painting this picture of a person that is so in love with God that all he does every single day is think about his truth and meditates upon who he is and his truth, right? And not only does he think about God and his truth and God's will, but he lives it out. Therefore, the conclusion in verse 3 says, because of all that, God prospers him. Look at what it says in Joshua 1.8. It says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. And once again, the same picture, we get the exact same picture, don't we, Joshua and in Psalm? We get someone who's so in love with God that all he thinks about is God's word, God's truth, God's will. Right? And he does that day and night. And because of it, it says, he therefore has to live it out because he realizes not only how much joy it gives God, but how joyous it is to make God happy. That's what we're talking about. And because of that, everything he does prospers. Okay? And so that's exactly what we're reading about in here. So when this particular verb is used twice in our passage today, it's absolutely intentional. Okay? It's intentionally painting a picture of a people of God who is so in love with God, who thinks about God, meditates God, meditates upon God, meditates upon His Word and His will so much that they have to live it out. And because of that, God chooses to be with them, is pleased with them, they experience his pleasure, and they prosper. 
in God. Do you guys get that? It's a simple concept to understand, isn't it? So Ezra 5 and 6 are chapters that teach us how to be prosperous in the Lord. And once again, the prosperity in the Lord is not about financial or material prosperity per se, but it's really about being successful in the mission of God. With that said, however, if you read your Old Testament, a lot of times God actually does promise financial prosperity and material prosperity in the Old Testament. And there are a lot of verses that are like that. And so, God, hey, Eddie, I thought you said it wasn't about that. I thought you said it was about the mission of God. And it is, right? In the Old Testament, God promises that he's going to bless Israel financially and materially and, and externally in so many ways. And here's the reason. And the reason why, ultimately, I'll explain in a second. The reason why is because the, he wants the mission of God to reach the nations with the gospel to succeed. And that's the reason why. You have to realize in the Old Testament, Israel is a puny nation. To most nations of the world, Israel is nothing. They're a tribe. They're not even a country. And so, you know, no one thinks about Israel back then, 6,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, 4,000. No one thought about Israel. They were nothing. But all of a sudden... If these powerful nations hear about this puny tribe being blessed financially, materially, if all of a sudden they hear these stories of this, what is this little tribe of Israel defeating these huge juggernaut nations in war? That will all of a sudden get the people's attention. That will get the nation's attention. And what's going to happen? They're going to go to this, this nation, this puny nation of Israel and say, hey, what's happening here? And they say what? Our God is with us. You guys need to fear God and follow him. And that's how people came to know God 6,000 years ago, 5,000, 4,000 years ago. It's that simple. God prospered them financially and material back in the day so that the nations could come, see God, fear God, and know God and follow after God. Do you guys get that? It was always all about the mission of God. And so the same goes for us as well. You know, today, I think in our day and age, you know, yes, many people are still impressed by things like wealth and power. But I believe in our day and age, especially in first world countries, I think people in our day and age are much more impressed by people who have, who continually operate their lives in joy, in peace, in love, in compassion, in generosity, regardless of how much they have in their bank accounts and regardless of the circumstances that they find them in, right? And God has given all those things to us abundantly in Jesus Christ himself. And so he gives all those things to us, not only so that we could be his comprehensively, but it's so that we can be successful in our mission to reach the nation's for Jesus Christ, right? So Ezra 5 and 6 ultimately is a lesson on how we can be successful in our mission as Christians, which once again is living to advance the kingdom, to advance the will of God, and to advance and promote the gospel of Jesus Christ to this lost world. Um, what I'd like to do today, if we understand that, is I want to give you two ways that you, our passage actually shares with us two ways that we can actually become prosperous in the mission of God together. And the first way is this. Uh, the first way is to see your life as the story of God. Okay, to see your life as the story of God. You know, chapter 5 begins with this statement where it says that the word of the Lord came to the two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to rebuild the temple. So what does Zerubbabel do? He responds in 
obedience. And verse 2 says that the prophets of God, therefore, were with them, supporting them. So it's painting this picture of a people who hears the word of God, and as a result, they do what? They obey. That's it. It's that simple. They decide, they hear the word of God, they hear the will of God, and they decide to obey it within their lives. And then the next verse says, because they obeyed, God is now with them. It's that simple. Okay. The first step to seeing your life as the story of God is... Okay, I'm sorry. The first step to seeing your life as a story of God is knowing his word and responding to it in obedience. Living in obedience to God's word and God's will. It's that simple, right? But it's not the what that I want you to concentrate on. It's the why that makes it so important. Why is it, you know, because like, you know, if someone tells you, hey, you need to see your life as a story of God. I mean, Okay, I guess I can do that. I guess I guess I can just see my life as God's will and you know the story of Jesus in my life or whatever, whatever. We can make something up and try to live it out. But no. But why is it living in obedience to his word? And this is the reason why. It's so that you can know and continually be convinced that God is actually with you. You know, all of us know that God's with us. Right? We've heard 10 million verses that God's with us. He'll always be with us. He'll never forsake us or leave us. But do you really know in your heart every single day that he is with you? That he's alive in you and that he's working within you? That's the reason why we need to live in obedience. And that's how we make his story our story. Okay? Um, it was about seven, seven years ago. I was... Um, I was in ministry, and it was a really intense time. It was a very difficult time. There was a lot of drama going on in the church. There was a lot of, like, relationships. There was a lot of, everything was kind of going haywire. I was extremely stressed as a pastor. And so what do, what do pastors do when they're extremely stressed? Yeah, we play golf. No. You know, I went to the prayer meeting. I went to the church's prayer meeting. I find myself, you know, Friday night at this prayer meeting. And I was ready. I had a list. I wrote all the things we're going to pray about, all the problems in the church, you know, all the problem people, you know, not like, no, not you guys, but no, that church, you know, you know, all, I, I had this list and I, I had it all planned. I'm going to pray for each one of these and God, you're going to give me wisdom. You're going to give me insight, love, how to tackle all these. So I start praying one by one and I, and I start going through this. And all of a sudden, I really feel like God was moving my heart in a totally different way. And I felt like God was telling me, Eddie, I don't want you to pray about those things. I want you to pray about your wife. I was like, why? We're good. <laughs> you know? And uh, I was really confused. And he was like, no, I want you to pray about your wife. I want you to pray about your children. I was like, dude, I pray for them every day. I mean, I mean, God, holy God, not dude. <laughs> you know, yeah, I pray, I pray for them every day. But he's like, no, I want you to pray for them. And so I started praying for them, and I abandoned the list. And then I really started to just really think about my relationship with my wife and my relationship with my kids, and I just felt like, oh, wow. You know, I started to realize maybe I'm not a great husband, you know, or maybe I'm not being a great husband these days. Maybe I'm too, like, focused on me and my work and everything. And, you know, maybe I'm, a, you know, maybe I'm not, like, not really present for my children and I'm not really being a great example and leading them closer to Jesus. All that kind of stuff. I came to all these conclusions. And I remember I, I left that prayer meeting and I was really confused, but I was like, oh, man, I felt worse than I did when I came. And then, but then I went home and I, and I talked to my wife and I was like, hey, um, am I a bad husband these days? And she's like, yeah, you kind of, you're kind of not that good. 
you know, no surprise there, I guess. Uh, and, you know, and then we just started talking. I kind of shared, you know, I started, I started sharing. Yeah, I'm really sorry. I'm like this, da, 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 da. And then, you know, my wife is the best. She's like, yeah, you know, I, I could kind of tell something's really difficult these days. You're always stressed. Something's really wrong, isn't it? Now? And I started to share about church and all that kind of stuff. And then no matter what, we just started sharing and sharing and sharing. And I remember that night, it ended with like uh, healing and empowerment and more important, most importantly, I felt like, wow, you know, I didn't know how this was going to go at the beginning of the day. But then all of a sudden, was before I'm going to sleep, I'm so thankful because I really felt like I had a true partner in the gospel. And I wanted to attack everything together. The problems were all still there. But because I simply listened to what God was leading me towards, I was like, wow. And the, the, the overwhelming thing wasn't that I had this partner, but before I went to sleep, the overwhelming feeling I had was, wow, God is alive in me. He's speaking to me. He's addressing things. He wants to strengthen things in my life in ways that I never would have imagined. And he wants to work in ways through me and through the church. And it just meant, wow, God, you're real. You're alive. And I was so excited to go to sleep. I was so excited to wake up the next morning and to tackle everything that was on the agenda. Do you know what I'm saying? When you live in obedience, it affirms the reality of God in your life. It affirms how much he loves you, cares about you, wants to work with you and partner with you to do his will in your life. But it takes obedience. In order for us to come to those conclusions many, many times. When you read God's word or hear God's word and you decide to put it into obedience, all of a sudden you're going to start to experience Emmanuel, God with us. Because that's what obedience does. And as you do, what will happen is that you will begin to have this confidence that your life isn't really your life. But all of a sudden, you start to realize that your life is simply the canvas that God wants to write his story through through you. And that's when Christianity gets exciting. You know, that's when it becomes a true honor and a privilege to, to know God and to partner with God and to be used by God to do things that you never would have imagined on your own for his glory, right? And that's when it's absolutely awesome. Even in the midst of like tragedies and hardships, it's awesome. There's this verse in Hebrews where, where it says that Jesus Christ endured the cross because of the joy set before him. That's an amazing verse. Because of the joy set before him, he chose to endure suffering and death. But what was that joy? It was the glory of the story of God written through his death. He was so excited that he could be used to glorify God more through death that he ran to it. That's crazy. But he understood the joy of living for, for living for God and have his story written through you. What an honor and privilege that is. It's only when you choose to live in obedience to God's word that you begin to see your life as the story of God. And that's exactly what these Jews did. You know, they knew and they were convinced that the story that they were a part of right then and there wasn't their own, but it was actually God's. In chapter 5, they're confronted, right, by these uh, opposers, you know, by opposition. And then when they're asked, hey, why are you guys rebuilding this temple? They could have just simply said, oh, King Cyrus told us to. We're just doing what we've been given this opportunity to. But that's not what they say. This is what they say in verses 11 to 13. This is what they say. They say, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. Because, But because our fathers had angered God, the God of heaven, 
He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed the house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. Do you see what he's saying? Can I kind of rephrase what he's saying here? They could have easily said, well, you know, we were just victims of the Babylonian takeover, right? But here they give zero credit to the Babylonians. Instead, they simply say what? God is writing his story through us. We were once disobedient and we were punished for that. But now that God gave us a second chance, there's no way we're going to do that. So make that same mistake again. That's what they were saying. They knew that God wanted to write his story of his glory through them. These Israelites knew that along with history itself, their, their lives were really about the story of God written in them, through them. And because of that, they they chose to live in obedience to his will, knowing that they would be prosperous in his work. You know, in the same way, we need to realize that God wants to write his story on the canvas of each one of our lives, right? So that this whole world can read it, not just the nation of Israel so the whole world can see what God's doing through this one nation, but God wants this world to see what he's doing in you, Right, So that the world around you can know God, see God, fear God, and follow after God because of what he's doing in you. And if we want to prosper in it, it begins with obedience. Right, It begins with a life that's absolutely convinced that God is with you, that God wants to work with you, and it's his joy to partner to do his work through you. And that's who we Christians really need to be. Obedience is so important. Right, You know, there was an elder in my church. I might have shared this story back with you a long time ago, maybe a few years ago. But uh, there's an elder in this church, in my old church, when I first became a pastor, maybe 20-some years ago, 25, 30 years ago, that really embodies this. You know, he was one of the richest Koreans and Korean Christians in in Chicago. And, you know, I remember uh, I was on a plane ride to Africa with him. We were going on this mission trip together. And he kind of shared his whole testimony with me. And so this is, this is how he began his testimony. He said, Eddie, when I first came to America, my only goal was to become super rich, right? And I did. You know, I knew exactly what I was doing in business. I had this business that absolutely flourished, and I became super rich. And then he said, he said, you know, he started confessing all this weird stuff, but it was awesome because he was like, you know, quite honestly, too, back then, I bought my way into an eldership, you know. <laughs> you know, I purchased an eldership in our church, and yada, yada, and those things happen, unfortunately. And But, you know, I didn't fear God. You know, I was always part of a Christian family, but I didn't really care too much about God, but I just wanted the status, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, he was, then all of a sudden he was sharing, but then one day after I was like super rich and, you know, living, you know, driving all these cars and living and having all these houses, I saw my building, my whole business, the whole building burned down. And Eddie, you have to know, we hide all of our cash in the building, right? Which a lot of immigrants do. Okay. And so he's like, yes, you know, so he literally, everything burned down. And, but you know, what was interesting was he was saying with a smile on his face, when that building was burning down, I was standing on the corner watching my building burn down. But that's when I knew God was speaking to me. And that's when he said, you know, I want your life to be about me. And that's when he surrendered his life to God for the first time, when he lost everything, you know. And so um, it was in that moment that he dedicated his life to saying, hey, you know, I've lived my whole life trying to build wealth here on earth. But from this day forward, all I'm ever going to do is try to build wealth in heaven. 
And that's been his testimony. And that really is still his life today. You know, what's really funny about him is that ever since that moment, he became not rich, but filthy rich, right? He's a multi-millionaire, maybe a billion, I have no idea. He's a multi, 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 multi-millionaire. But to my knowledge, he is probably one of the fewest million multi-millionaires I know that literally use probably most of his income on the kingdom. All I've ever known him to be is a man who devotes Tons and tons of money to building the kingdom. He funds missions, missionaries, missionary organizations, uh, agencies, mission projects, churches. You name it, he's a part of it. You know, I remember there was one time he was telling me, Eddie, you need to pray for me. I said, why? Because there's this global missions project or ministry project that I really need, uh, that I'm a part of. And I said, okay, but unfortunately, we need about a few million dollars to get this thing off the ground. I was like, well, dude, you're rich enough to do that, aren't you? He's like, no, no. You know, I, I, we, it's ridiculously much more than I, I even have. And I said, well, how are you going to get there? He goes, I have no idea. But don't worry. God can do anything. And we're like, okay. And then I remember... Um, that's when the IMF hit Korea, you know, and the Korean currency absolutely plummeted. And then I remember seeing him as like, oh, God's answering our prayers. And not, you know, not that, you know, you wanted bad things to happen to Korea. But, you know, this guy's super rich. So he's like, I'm just going to invest it. I'm going to maybe put a million or a few million dollars into buying Korean one when it's absolutely on the bottom. Absolutely confident it's going to skyrocket in a few years. And it did. And therefore, multiple millions of dollars went to this ministry project. And it was absolutely wonderful. And, you know, that's just how he operates. You know, and, I, and on a total side note, I realize it's awesome when you see super rich people who understand why God gives us money. You know, like a lot of times poor people and God gives you money, like we share it. We, we use it for his ministry. We do it because we don't have much, so we do it. But then when you see rich people do it, it's like, oh. It's like, it's like glorious. Anyway, I remember him telling me, I told you, he was telling me that story on a, on a plane to Africa and he's sharing that with me. And the whole time he's sharing it with a smile. Like, oh yeah, my building burned down, you know? And he's sharing this with a huge smile in his face. Um, but then he ended the story basically like this. He said, Eddie, you have to realize in this life, there really is no greater honor than to be used to build his kingdom, Right? I had everything, but I realized once it all burned down, it doesn't mean anything. I really had nothing anyway. God just, that fire just helped me realize I had nothing if I didn't really have God. Now I get to literally just invest wealth in the kingdom, which has nothing to do with money. God can use it. But it really is, there's no greater honor as a human being than to be used to build his kingdom and to build wealth in the kingdom for his glory. And that's all he ever wants to do until... He dies. What's he saying? He's saying there's no greater way to live than to build God's kingdom in your life, right? Um, there's nothing greater than having the story of God written in and through your life. I'm actually convinced that there, there's probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of, of people who got saved because of this man. You know, And it took a fire for that to happen, but... Praise God, you know, for the fire. You know, for all those who are, here, who are here today, who are saved, what it made me realize is that you have a choice every single day. You do. It's very simple. You can either live your life for yourself or you can live to allow God to tell his story through you. 
you know? I always pray that you will do the latter. It begins with obedience. But that life that begins with obedience will always end with his glory. I hope you always choose the latter. Secondly, um, live holy. How else do we allow his story to be told within our lives? Live holy. Verses 9 to 22, 19 to 22 of verse or chapter 6 says that uh, it tells us that the people of Israel, they did everything that they could to stay holy within their lives. They purified themselves. They separated themselves from the uncleanness of the people of the lands that it says. They celebrated their forgiveness and their good standing in God through sacrifices. What was the result? Verse 22 says, and the Lord made them joyful. That's awesome, right? So not only were they joyful as a result of being holy and living holy, they were joyful because they could know, they could feel, they could sense, they knew that the joy of God was upon them because of all that they did. And when that's the case, remember what does Psalm 1-3 say? What does it say? It will happen. You will prosper in all you do. What does Joshua 1-8 say will happen? You will prosper in all you do. Why? Because God is with you and his joy is upon you. The key to sustaining prosperity is holiness. The key to sustaining prosperity in your life is holiness. We must all strive to be holy in all that we do. But um, anyone who's tried long enough to try to be holy and to live holy within their lives knows it's very, very difficult, right? We fail so often. And even when we kind of do succeed to live holy and to kind of live a pretty good holy life, just in the act of doing so, we realize how much more sinful we really are. And so, you know, I remember when I was younger, I used to think, oh man, that's a catch-22, right? If you try to live holy, you can't. Even when you do try to live holy, you just realize how much more sinful you really are. You're screwed no matter what else happens in your efforts to live holy. And I used to think that was such a catch-22, but it really isn't as I grow more and more in Christ. Why? Because if you're truly living your life to be holy, right, Um, and you're actually kind of succeeding, then that makes you more joyful and thankful for Jesus Christ, who's actually helping you to become holy. It's a good thing. you got to look at it in that way. God, thank you so much for empowering me, for helping me to realize the folly of sin so that I can choose you and your goodness every single day. Thank you so much. It's awesome. And you get to experience his joy in holiness. And if you fail and you continually realize the depth of the depravity of your, uh, the reality of your depravity, Well, that's good, too, because that should drive you back to Christ so that you could be loved and forgiven and restored once again. Right. So both options should drive you back to Jesus. So it's a win win. It's not a catch 22. It's a win win, isn't it? Because you're going to be driven towards Christ and you're going to be thankful for Christ. You're going to be thankful for the gospel. You're going to be empowered and loved again by Jesus himself. And you get to walk away hopeful that he's with you. How awesome is that. And it should make sense to all of us, right? Because, you know, Jesus Christ, when he died upon the cross, he died for our sins, past, present, and future. Therefore, and I love the future part, therefore, when we do sin today, even if we sin grossly, we have to be convinced that God already knew that when he sent us in Jesus Christ to die for us and already forgave us of that, knowing that we would sin that sin. Therefore, we should never be ashamed to go to God who already knew it in the first place, who already forgave us in the first place, who already embraced us and loved us and sent his son in the first place. And so therefore, we should be confident going to him Because of what Jesus Christ did upon the cross for us, that we're completely, comprehensively forgiven, adored, loved, and embraced, and forgiven. And because we are, we can go to him without shame, without embarrassment, 
But we can go to him boldly because of what Christ did upon the cross for us. And why does God want us to do that all the time? Simple. Because he wants us to live our lives not in shame and in sin, but in freedom and in joy, in forgiveness and in love. Why? So that we can live the life that he actually created us to live, live for and saved us for, which is what? A life of holiness that proclaims his story to this world. And it's not a story of our perfection, is it? It's a story of his glory and goodness right through us. And that's awesome. I remember when I was a first-year uni student, I struggled a lot when I was like six months or eight months into Christianity. And I was really like confused because I thought, wow, if I'm forgiven by Jesus, then I should live holy. Okay, great. But the more I tried to live holy, the more sinful I realized I was. And I wasn't getting more holy. I was actually... I felt like I was getting more sinful. And what didn't make sense to me as a young Christian was, I don't understand. I don't think God's that smart because if God was smart and his goal is worship, his worship, then he should just kill me now so that I can worship him perfectly in heaven. Wouldn't that give him more glory? Why would he keep a sinner who keeps on sinning down here on earth, stumbling everybody else, not being a great example, sometimes not even caring about God? Why would he keep me here on earth? How does God receive more worship than that? And I remember I talked to an older brother, and I said to him, hey, it doesn't make sense to me. And you know what he said? What he said changed my life, what he said. He said, you know, uh, he said, Eddie, you're just thinking about yourself. I said, yeah. He goes, don't you realize that God keeps you here on earth because he wants to use you to save others? I said, okay. He's like, you're only, you're only concerned about your personal worship to God. And I said, yeah. And he says, yes, I guess if God put you to death and brought you to heaven, he would get worship from one person perfectly. Okay. But what if God used you to save hundreds, if not thousands, then all of a sudden thousands of people would be worshiping tomorrow instead of just one. And that's when the light went off. God keeps us here on earth so that he could use us to tell his story so that many people can come to know Jesus through our lives not so that one person can worship God perfectly in heaven, but hundreds and thousands, if not tens of thousands, can. Do you see? That's how valuable you are to God. And that's why God gives you life and breath every single morning when you wake up. You know, whenever I wake up, I'm just like, okay, I guess God believes in me one more day. His mercies are new every single morning. Do you know what I'm saying? This is evidence of how much he loves you and is invested in you and how much he wants to use you. Do you guys understand this? God wants to write his story through you and it takes our obedience. It's about our holiness and our holiness will help make that story come true and save many in the long run. So, to be prosperous in Christ, live out your life as God's story, make his story your legacy, and then live holy to sustain that prosperity in your life and watch God use you to make him great. God, our Father, wants all of his children to be prosperous and successful. He wants to use all his children to point the lost to Jesus Christ. He wants to write his story through you and he wants to use you to proclaim his worthiness to the world so that people can be saved. Do you guys get this? Cool. Let's pray. You always hear all the time that Christianity is not about you. It's always about Jesus. And it is 
It is. And the more you really understand that truth and the more you live your life according to that truth, man, the things that God can do through you. D.L. Moody once said that I, we have yet to see what God's going to do through a man or a woman who's fully surrendered to Jesus. There is no greater honor or privilege than to have God write his story through your life. The tough part is that we always just want to live our life. So can I ask you, if you're a believer here today, will you surrender your life to Jesus so that he can write his story through you, so that people's lives can be saved through you? No greater honor, no greater privilege that we can experience as a Christian. Hopefully it doesn't take a fire in our lives to realize that. If you're a non-believer here today, if you're not a believer yet, this is what Christianity is. Christianity is the greatest honor in the world that we can have as human beings to allow God to write his story through us. Because we were created in his image, loved by him, saved by him, called to be like him, no greater honor. That's what Christianity is. And we have a privilege of sharing that with others regardless of what they might think about us. And if that's, a, if, that's, if that's a family you want to be a part of, then you got to know Jesus Christ died for you and your sins so that you could be a part of it. And if you want to be a part of it, just put your faith in Jesus Christ today. And you can. That would be pretty amazing if you did. So why don't we just spend some time telling God what we want and asking him to help us get there. Let's pray. so much for this honor and this privilege to be we thank you God that you loved us enough to send your son Jesus to die for us so that we could be yours so that we could know you so that we could walk with you every day so that we could experience your joy and your peace within our lives so we could have the honor of being used by you to touch our families, to touch our friends, to touch our neighbors. And Father, so that many more can worship as a result. And Father, we thank you, God, that what Jesus did on the, upon the cross for us was so much greater than our own personal forgiveness. 
but it's so that this world could truly know you and worship you as well. So Father, we ask that you convict the hearts of the believers in this room, God, to allow you to write your story through us, no matter what it might mean to us. For the joy set before us, enduring the cross, it sounds crazy, but on the other hand, it sounds awesome. Help it to be awesome to us in every way, personally. And for those who might not know you today, God, once again, help them to take that next step towards you so they can truly see how worthy and beautiful and awesome you really are and would give their lives as a sacrifice as well. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.